Good evening. Welcome to Diversity and Inclusion on Air. I am Lisa Greenhill, the Associate Executive Director for Diversity um, and Institutional Research with the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges. Um, this is our first of a very new program, um, Diversity and Inclusion on Air, which um, we hope at the association and our allied organizations such as Voice um, will bring additional diversity programming to um, our member institutions, um, veterinary practitioners, and anyone interested in the veterinary community about diversity and inclusion. So tonight, um, we are delighted to have our very first guest, who is Dr. William Gillis. Um, you can see him on the screen. And um, we will have essentially three segments tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about bioinformation um, with uh, Dr. Gillis, and then we'll talk about the WISCARES program at University of um, Wisconsin at Madison, and then we'll talk a bit about um, the course that Dr. Gillis offered um, earlier this fall um, at Madison, and um, we will open the chat room um, so you can, uh, uh, if you're watching live, you can uh, chat with us. Um, and ask questions, and I will facilitate those questions as Dr. Gillis is talking. So, um, without further ado, Dr. Gillis, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, so, I'm Dr. William Gillis. I'm a graduate of the University of Wisconsin School of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, I got into veterinary medicine from a previous educational career in linguistics, um, which a lot of people are kind of interested to find out. And to me, the, the reason why I went into veterinary medicine was really uh, twofold. One was because of this background in linguistics, I've always found that language is something very near and dear to my heart. And it really interested me that animals don't have language the way that people do. So finding a way to be able to bridge that gap and work with people to understand their pets, even though it might not be a communication style that they were used to, was something that was really interesting to me. Um, I also walked into veterinary school thinking I was going to be a horse vet. When I was in high school, I had a, I grew up as a horseback rider, and one of the veterinarians that had the most impact on me uh, was my horse's vet when I was in high school. And I had been dealing with, you know, a lot of different questions and challenges as far as identity goes and trying to figure out who I was. And horseback riding was something that was very important to me. Uh, my horse, unfortunately, became extremely ill with lymphoma and over a two-course you know, kind of battle with that disease that wound up eventually putting him to sleep. But the veterinarian who had worked with me through that whole experience was really someone who showed me that being a vet was, was much more than just dealing with the animal. It was a, a way to kind of support the human that's connected to the other side of that animal that you might be working with. Um, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. So when I came back here for vet school, it was returning to my old stomping grounds a little bit. And uh, I'm currently still in Madison, Wisconsin. Can't seem to to get away too far for too long. But fantastic. So um, again, we are joined tonight in our first diversity and inclusion on air with Dr. Gillis. And um, so tonight we're going to talk a bit about uh, Whiskers. So. Mm -hmm. Um, Whiskers is a program that you started, I think, a few years ago. Um, you seem, I remember chatting. I, I know Dr. Gillis from his um, time in vet school, and I know that he had this um, amazing vision for um, doing some community kind of based work in veterinary medicine, and um, it seems that he is living the dream. So, 
Um, so uh, tell us about WISCARES, um, some general information, and then we certainly have some follow-up questions. And again, if you're watching live, the group chat is open and you can certainly post questions there. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> excuse me, WISCARES, what is WISCARES? Um, it's an interesting question that has kind of, the answer has changed uh, exponentially over the course of the past couple of years. So I'll kind of take you back to uh, a little bit of the story behind this program and why it was founded and then tell you a little bit about where we are today. Uh, WISCARES actually initially started as kind of a, a volunteer-run idea um, about three or four years ago between myself and at the time another uh, student at the University of Wisconsin as well as a couple of practitioners in our community that we're really looking for a way to um, bridge kind of this gap in people not having access to even just basic education about, you know, what veterinary care is important for my pet and where can I go to access it if I don't have a lot of resources, um, you know, basic kind of husbandry questions. And so we, you know, kind of put our heads together and we're trying to think of what, what sorts of things could be done on a, a small scale to help support some of those gaps in care that we were seeing. Uh, and so it initially started as a, a hotline that was volunteer run where people could just call and ask questions about their pets. You know, is um, this thing that I'm seeing something I should be concerned about? Um, if it is something I should be concerned about, what, what resources exist in the community that you can kind of send me towards to, to find someone to help me with that? And we partnered initially with the, uh, the AIDS Network of Wisconsin, uh, which has since been merged with the uh, AIDS Resource Center of Wisconsin, but it's an organization that provides a lot of social support and health care to individuals living with HIV in our state. Um, this is Beckett. She was a junior surgery cat when I was a student. Um, I didn't do her surgery though. So um, that was kind of the initial initial view and we did have a number of people who called us and the pattern that we were running into then was that now there's this phone number that people can call but there's not really a lot of resources we can refer them to if there is a question that they have about what they should be doing to care for their pet. All of this kind of coincided with my vet school career and uh, getting experience during fourth year in some different clinical areas focusing on uh, you know working with individuals on reservations in our country working with individuals in different low-income neighborhoods in the country. And, and so I started to kind of wonder, you know, what as a profession could we really be doing to make sure that not only is there a phone number people can call, but there's also some type of an answer that we can give on the other side. So WISCARES as it is now kind of hit this um, growth spurt a couple of years ago when the, the University of Wisconsin School of Veterinary Medicine um, identified independently that there is a real need in the, the community surrounding the vet school to provide veterinary medical care to pets that were living with people experiencing homelessness in our community. And at that time, uh, this conversation started about, you know, can we do something, can we do some, you know, vaccine clinics or some kind of events to get some more of this um, care out to animals that might not uh, be able to get access to it. And initially the conversation looked like it was going to kind of go down that road, but then we luckily got uh, hooked up with a professor at the School of Social Work who's done a lot of research on um, particularly LGBT-identified youth experiencing homelessness. And the, the question got much more, well, I like to say it got much more interesting at that point, but it really got much more complicated. 
but we began to identify that outside of just providing veterinary medical care and just providing advice for, for individuals on um, what they could be doing for their pets from a husbandry uh, perspective, from a medication perspective, preventive care, all of those things, they're great, but people also needed, you know, they needed food for their animals. So they needed um, a safe place for their pet to stay so they could get access to the shelter system in our community. Uh, you know, they needed people who could advocate with landlords so that a pet could join them when they finally did get access to housing. So we started to develop this program that could work with folks and work with them holistically using veterinary medicine and social work to not only provide these veterinary medical services, but also to um, dog and my cat are having a conversation behind me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, to, to not only provide these veterinary medical pieces, but also to really work on that housing advocacy um, part of it and explore what the collaboration could look like between two professions working together to try and combat homelessness. So the program right now focuses around the issue of homelessness. Um, and we have veterinary medical clinics. Uh, we also have a boarding program so that animals can get access to a safe place to stay if their owners need to get into the shelter system. Um, we've had people use it so they could get access to um, mental health care for themselves or for other forms of medical care for themselves. We have a, a pet food pantry. We do street outreach. We take backpacks of pet food out to establish um, relationships and uh, you know make sure we're keeping our faces out there as community members who are really interested in meeting people where they're at to help them with their pets. So that, wow. in a nutshell, is <laughs> it's a pretty big nut. So um, <laughs> how, so that's about really kind of what the program is about and mm -hmm. how it kind of came about. So um, how many, what's the homeless population in, in um, Madison? So Madison has a, a trick, I mean, any homeless population is really tricky to yeah. take a, a census of. Um, and, and for those of you who aren't you know, necessarily familiar with the way that communities do that, uh, any community that gets federal funding to work on uh, you know, issues related to homelessness is required to take a, a census twice a year to kind of keep tabs on um, the homeless population that exists in their community. And the way that Madison does that is uh, we do a point in time survey. So there's two nights a year where outreach workers will go out and, um, I mean, it can be a pretty invasive type of process because there's outreach workers going out all night long, walking up to people who are sleeping outside and asking them questions about, you know, are you homeless? And how did you, know, how did you arrive in this situation? And kind of a series of questions on, uh, you know, health and um, substance abuse history and, and you know, it's not anything that anyone really likes to, to do, uh, but it's the closest we can get to a number. Um, and that number has been pretty consistently around 800 at any given point in time in, in the Dane County, which is the county surrounding Madison. Now that doesn't count individuals who are living with family members or friends. Um, it doesn't count the majority of youth who are experiencing homelessness because a lot of Younger people um, are what we call couch surfers. They'll be jumping from, you know, one um, one house to another, not having a, a stable place for them to stay. So certainly uh, fitting the definition of homelessness, but they're not individuals that really get counted in that census. Um, and that's also just in kind of a given point in time. Just I mean, one other number that I think is extremely striking 
uh, is the, you know, the average age of someone who's homeless in our community is nine years old. Um, and last year in our school system, we had over 1,500 children over the course of a year who were identified as experiencing homelessness during the school year. So um, it, we have a much more modest-sized population compared to a lot of you know, large urban areas, uh, particularly in warm, warmer states that you would think of. Um, but the, the problem is underestimated at best in every community. So. Wow. Um, again, the group chat is um, open if you can't find it. If you're watching live um, in Google Plus Hangouts, it is um, in the uh, corner. There's a little blue box. If you hover over it, it says chat. So if you have questions, um, I will be moderating those. Um, but until we have outside questions, I have plenty of questions for Dr. Gillis. So how is the program funded? Uh, the program uh, is funded through kind of a combination of school support. Um, the school has actually committed a lot of financial resources towards it in the form of salary and some uh, programming costs. Most of the uh, supplies that we use are donated by industry, so we've been very, uh, very thankful to our industry partners for helping keep us in vaccines and parasite prevention and a lot of the basic medications that we need. Um, to run a, a basic wellness clinic. Um, and then, you know, outside of that, we've got a couple of students who work part-time for the program. And then we've got about 35 veterinary medical students and social work students who volunteer to keep our shifts going and our doors open, so. So what are your hours? I imagine with such a transient population, you have pretty long hours. Yeah, well, so it's it's interesting because one of the, the challenges is certainly the communication piece of it. And at least in our city, um, people exist in such, you know, different areas that trying to trying to travel around all the time to stay um, hooked up with where people are staying would be a little bit of a, a waste of resources. So we've established a central location. Uh, there's been an organization in town, the St. Vincent de Paul um, in Madison has actually donated use of one of their outbuildings to us. So we have about a thousand square foot building that we can use as our home base. Um, and we have hours there on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays that are, um, some of them have veterinarians at them and some of them are veterinary clinic hours, but the majority of them are actually um, just kind of to meet with individuals, to do intake, to help strategize on housing difficulties, kind of all the things where that pet isn't the immediate concern. But once someone comes to us to get their animal updated on vaccines and we identify that there's a number of other areas we can help them in, they've come to some of those hours to meet with our students. Um, that's also when we do a lot of our food pantries so people stop by and get food for their pets. Um, we also run a couple of satellite clinics um, Every Wednesday afternoon, we've got those out at different uh, social service agencies in the city, again, trying to make sure that, uh, you know, we're able to meet people at a location that's convenient to them, but also understanding that, that we kind of need to get in touch with people in advance to know what we're going to be having to help them with at those clinics. So we're not, you know, trying to carry absolutely every supply we possibly could all over the place. Um, and that so far for the, the number of people that we're working with has been, um, you know, it's, it's been pretty effective. We're certainly at capacity right now. Uh, we have about 140 clients that we have uh, as 
an active client base. Uh, most of them we see multiple times. Um, but our focus really isn't on serving you know, the highest volume that we can. Our focus is really on being able to build a relationship with clients. My dog is a rawhide. Um, build a relationship with clients, take the time to sit down and strategize with them, you know, what's going on in life today. Uh, how can we kind of help you manage things a little bit better um, or make it a little bit easier for you? So, um, okay. yeah. so um, does, do you take private donations? We do. Yes, we do. Um, we work uh, with a number of local like pet stores to, to do kind of supply donations of food and things like that. We also certainly appreciate financial donations. Um, there's ways to access that through the program's website um, through the university, um, which is at wiscares.wisc.edu. We just recently got our own program-centric website outside of the vet school, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, and, and that's certainly been another, you know, another important piece of support. I think the most like heartwarming donations to get are when we have clients who give us like a dollar fifty or two dollars because it's you know all they have but they feel that they should be giving something for the care of their pet um, so all right well we'll be sure to put the links um for our generous <laughs> viewers um to find you um so um a couple of questions before we wrap up this particular segment so um where do you see the program going um What's your vision? Well, what's my, my vision? Well, we know I like to dream big. So, excuse me, the initial, you know, the initial vision and kind of the track that we're still on to, to try and realize over the next few years is to really make this a true One Health initiative. Um, we've been talking kind of all along with some of the other programs on campus that deal more with human medicine within this population to look at different ways that we can collaborate with them. Um, you know, starting with acting as a, a social service referral. So when, you know, perhaps when they go um, and run free clinics for people uh, and students who are working at those clinics might be recommending resources, um, just helping to make sure that follow-up happens. Uh, anything from there to, you know, someday having a facility that has uh, a full vet clinic as well as a, a full, you know, kind of family practice on the same location, I think would be a really really interesting collaboration. There could be a lot of exciting things done with that. Um, you know, so I think that's kind of the, the overarching goal and we are definitely heading in that direction, which is which is pretty exciting to see. Um, right now we do a lot of referral with our clients to, to bring them to existing human health resources in the community. We've actually discovered that a number of clients we work with are not familiar with the social services in the community. So we found that, you know, perhaps having that pet forms a little bit of a barrier accessing services in the traditional capacity. Um, you can't, you know, necessarily walk into a building if you have a dog. Uh, you can't really get access to programs that are out there. Uh, so, so far we've found that we are able to identify a population of people who doesn't have the information uh, to get hooked up with existing human health or other social support services. Um, so that's been exciting to see as well. Okay, great. Um, and so the last question for this segment, what do you, what would you want students, 
faculty and practitioners um, in the veterinary community um, to learn from WISCARES? Um, well, I think there's a, a few really important lessons with a program like this, one of which is it's, it's really important to think outside of the box a little bit and to understand what something as simple as a rabies vaccine could mean for a pet and for their family. Uh, we have had clients who, because we've given a rabies vaccine to their dog, that animal has not wound up in the shelter because they were able to bring that animal into housing with them. You know, we've had um, clients who have been repeatedly, um, you know, given citations because their animals were not licensed and, and they're kind of, you know, heaping more financial burden on um, an individual who doesn't have a lot of resources to dig out from under that. And because we were able to get that, that dog uh, a rabies vaccine, you know, that cycle kind of ended. Um, so that's certainly one thing is that just understanding that something that seems really simple to us can actually have a huge impact uh, in an immediate sense and a long-term sense on a person's situation. Um, the, the other thing I think is that we really haven't scratched the surface at all in terms of what our profession can do if we partner extremely actively with other professions. I think there's a lot of um, a lot of talk and a lot of theory about interprofessional collaboration that has built a great foundation and a great argument for, for doing a lot of this work. And if you reach out and, and do kind of work side by side on the same situation, you know, you find some really, really exciting things that you never even thought would be a possibility that can help you collaborate. So those would be, I think, the two main things. All right. Great. Oh, one last question um, before mm -hmm. we move on. Um, do you see an opportunity for clinical rotations for students at some point? Yes, I do. Um, I have, you know, a number of our own fourth year students have spent some of their rotations with WISCARES. Um, they do a combination of working with the, the veterinary medical clinics that we have, um, as well as doing kind of, uh, they get to choose kind of an independent project around this issue of increasing access to veterinary medical care, whether that's creating an educational handout or a resource for other students who are working in the clinic. Um, and that's certainly something that, that we'd be very open to having students from other, uh, other institutions coming to participate in something similar. Awesome. All right. Well, again, we are joined tonight in the first episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air with Dr. William Gillis um, from WISCARES at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, so the last segment um, for our time together tonight uh, will focus on um, a diversity course elective that you've also kind of spearheaded at the vet school at Madison. Um, and so you've been pretty busy in the last year. So tell us a little bit about um, uh, what made you want to start a course and kind of how did you go about getting it set up for those young enterprising faculty at other institutions? Yeah, so at Wisconsin, we have uh, this week called the Selectives Week, which is in the fall and the spring. Um, a few years ago, we started offering week-long kind of intensive courses on a variety of topics. Um, and the, the course that I kind of pitched last year and was able to start teaching this past fall was a week-long intensive course on social justice in veterinary medicine. Um, and I think the fact that we you know, have that, that week-long framework to work with makes it really easy to 
um, put out an idea and kind of have, you know, the administration say, okay, well, we'll see if this is something students are interested in um, and we'll kind of see how it goes without having to, to put a huge, you know, financial commitment or resource commitment into it. So that was definitely one one thing that was really a benefit. Um, but as you know, I've, I've always kind of been interested in these, these issues of increasing access to veterinary medical care. And even when I was a student and I was involved in our, um, our uh, Gay Straight Veterinary Alliance at the vet school and trying to, you know, get speakers to come in and trying to figure out um, how to make something matter to someone who is um, being educated in veterinary medicine. And there's always this kind of question of, well, how do we directly relate this back to veterinary medicine? And what it, what it seemed, um, seems to me that we were actually saying was, how do we make this um, like directly translatable um, to a, you know, a uh, setting in uh, an exam room? Like, how would you just kind of pick up this lesson and without having to reinterpret any of it, how would you put that into an exam room or an action, interaction with um, an owner and an animal or, you know, a clinical procedure or something of that nature. Uh, so this course that I started to, to think about developing was really taking that and turning it on its head a little bit and saying, so if the end point is we want to have people who are well-equipped to answer some of the tough questions our profession is going to have to answer, um, you know, in terms of increasing access to veterinary medical care, we have a uh, a huge percentage of people in our country who own pets that don't get access to veterinary medical care. Um, something's going to have to, you know, be developed soon, and we're going to need to figure out how we own up to that and how we address that as a profession. But if the skill set is to kind of do this systems work and to, you know, work on um, interacting with different populations of people that our profession typically does, or um, you know, just kind of bridging some of those gaps, then, then really the skill set that we should be giving students should be focusing on that piece of it. And there's, you know, no need to um, directly justify that to practicing clinical medicine, because that's still doing work as a veterinarian. If you're increasing access to veterinary medical care, even if you don't touch an animal to do it, you're still making sure more animals get access to medicine. Uh, so that was kind of the the theory of the class, you know, and if we remove the framework that we typically operate in and just kind of try to explore this idea of, you know, as a profession, is there um, a level of vet care that every animal and every person is, you know, has a right to access, which is an idea that uh, Emily McCobb from Tufts, you know, just phrased that. I was on the phone with her a few weeks ago and she just phrased that so beautifully. Um, what is the level of veterinary care that as a profession we decide every animal has a right to, um, then what follows from that is, well, what, what are we going to do about it to make sure they get that? Um, so that was, you know, the, the start of this idea. And then uh, it really turned into this fantastic workshop where we had uh, a mixture of, you know, morning group activities. We had someone come in from the LGBT Resource Center on campus who did one of the most amazing workshops on uh, building concrete advocacy skills. And he was working with our students on, you know, not only um, how do I advocate on behalf of different populations or different groups of people, but how can I directly translate that to being an advocate for my patient when I'm talking with other veterinarians or when I'm talking with an owner who I may not 
uh, you know, be directly seen eye to eye with. Um, so that was a really great piece of it. And then throughout the week, you know, we didn't actually, we didn't touch any animals. We didn't have um, an experience that, that felt at all like being in an exam room. And I, I got a lot of feedback from students that when I said that at the beginning of the week, we weren't gonna you know, do anything with animals, they might've been a little skeptical, but um, we had a field experience where we went out and brought bottled water and blankets to people who were sleeping out by our city county building. Um, and you know, they were able to engage with people that, um, I think one of the students phrased it beautifully. She said something along the lines of, you know, if there had been a pet, I wouldn't have gotten out of my comfort zone because I would have just talked about the pet with this person. So being able to um, teach students about some of these um, really big challenging topics through uh, you know, different types of exposure that might not be what we traditionally think of in veterinary medicine um, seems to offer them actually an awful lot in terms of giving them room to process without having you know, the pressure of how does this relate to um, something clinical or how does this specifically relate to something I'm going to be doing in, in another class because it's it's not it's a completely different skill set than, than the rest of um, the rest of veterinary medicine so so you were saying that this was a really great opportunity for students to get a bit out of their comfort zone not focus on the animal but really focus on the person um, mm -hmm. and really kind of understanding um, how important the human client is in mm -hmm. um, providing medical care. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so uh, how many students participated? Uh, we had four, and it, honestly, it was a, a great size. Um, you know, we, we spent the first half hour of the first day laying our ground rules and how we were going to talk with each other. And I mean, by the end of the week, we had had some incredibly challenging conversations. Um, and really personal conversations, and I think it, it helped, uh, you know, help show that that that's something that we can talk about as professionals, and we can develop a skill set to have these really challenging, you know, challenging things come up. But it's so it's okay to engage with you know um, another professional to deal with it, and we can be colleagues, but be colleagues in a way that, that can be extremely effective at creating things that can change the future of the profession. So I don't I don't know that um, a huge class would have been nearly as effective doing, sure. doing that sure. type of work. So did you have um, additional assignments? Um, how did you, I mean, was this a pass-fail course? How did you evaluate um, your students? Yeah, so the, the course was, uh, was, was pass-fail, but we did have Every day they had, you know, we would have our morning um, and have kind of a, a conversation-driven topic. You know, I'd usually have a series of things we'd want to be able to at least hit on, but let the students drive a lot of the conversation. Um, and then in the afternoon, there would be an activity, and that activity uh, ranged from, you know, this outreach experience that we all did as a group. Um, there was, a, you know, a day where they did three different online poverty simulations. Um, some other kind of experiences of, of that nature, and then they would have to write a reflective piece on either, you know, what we had talked about that day or what that experience had given them, um, or, you know, on some topic that we were kind of setting up for discussion the next day. So, it, you know, the, the course was pass-fail, but they all really dug in and did some amazing work. Uh, I was very, very impressed. 
So uh, will the course be offered again? And uh, if so, when? Uh, my understanding is yes. And that would, you know, be in the spring semester of the next week of selectives. So I'm hoping it can be, you know, kind of uh, every semester we've got a small group of students who can come together to, to talk about this type of thing. So um, the one interesting thing that I, I thought was um, just really, really neat to see was just to kind of get back to the assessment piece of it was the, the final project. So the last thing that I made them do was to, um, on Thursday afternoon, I, I kind of tasked them with, okay, over the next, you know, 24 hours, um, how would you fix, how would you fix this, you know, given um, at the start, no financial limitations, but then kind of walking through, okay, now that we've thought outside of the box, how would you look at implementing it from where we're at now, you know, within our profession um, to answer some of these questions. And they actually came up with like a really plausible way to break down, um, you know, different relationships between private practitioners working together to, to solve some issues. Like I was really blown away with, um, with what they were able to put together for that final project, so. Fantastic. So do you think anybody might, uh, <laughs> Be inspired to do some of their work and make it. I, I, yeah, I would be honestly surprised if if uh, if they didn't do something with it after school. I think it, it's it's pretty exciting to see, you know, the wheels turning for for what our future might be expecting five or ten years from now. So, so what did you learn from offering the selective? I learned a lot. I think I learned how much students have to offer. And I know that like, I did not graduate that recently, so this shouldn't have been a surprise to me. Um, you know, but just how much students have to offer and how much uh, can be accomplished when we're able to, to kind of break down this wall between, you know, pre-graduate and graduate. Um, I mean, that was something that I think like I knew, but, but it hadn't really been driven home from, from seeing it on this side of, of the equation. Um, and I think, you know, getting the feedback from students, it was a little bit of a, a leap for me to have a field experience that had nothing to do with pets. You know, I could have had them come to do one of our WISCARES clinics. That would have been really easy to, to work in there. Um, so I think it was, it was really great to learn that that actually seemed to be an incredibly effective way to have students um, get some experience um, with some challenging topics. And I think, you know, overall the, um, the, the feeling that I got from the student body was that, um, you know, it was a pretty small population of students that actually took the course, but there were a number that seemed very interested in it. It just, there was you know, something else that they also wanted to take, um, you know, whether it was pharmacology or parasitology or something a little bit more clinical in nature. Um, so I think that really kind of showed me that there is a hunger out there for getting this skill set and and finding ways to do it. Um, you know, students are going to take advantage of opportunities that are out there, uh, but it it can't be it can't be like a one size fits all. Well, here's what we're doing to to answer this and to provide ways for students to get this skill set. It really needs to be something that um, an institution can attack from a lot of different angles because students will. Um, 
students will participate and they'll get involved, but there's so much on their plate that the more ways you can provide that contact, um, the better, so. Okay. Um, so what advice might you give um, faculty at other institutions or even practitioners who might want to start um, kind of a small program for, you know, students that may be working with them or even pre-vets that might mm -hmm. be working with them? In what capacity could you? So in terms of kind of creating this kind of learning experience, okay. uh, how might you replicate this? Um, in um, another kind of week-long seminar or some type of embedded course. Certainly a lot of our colleges now um, include um, diversity mm -hmm. and inclusion-related topics within like mm -hmm. a, a you know, professional foundations course or you know, practice management course. How might they kind of um, um, replicate this kind of um, seminar experience? Um. I mean, I think it's it's not as hard as it sounds before you start pulling it together. So my first kind of piece of advice would be to just commit to doing it, and a lot of the pieces will fall into place. Uh, one of the things I found to be very helpful is to reach outside of veterinary medicine as much as possible. Um, you know, bringing in speakers to talk about how to be an effective ally. Um, that should be someone whose work is training people in how to be an effective ally, you know, not, not a veterinarian who's um, interested in the topic. And I think that was something that, you know, at least I've heard in a number of conversations kind of along those lines of, you know, do we bring uh, a veterinarian in to come talk about this story or, um, you know, do we find someone who's not at all related to the field, but that skill set is really what they do well. Uh, and I would definitely recommend especially with a limited amount of time, you know, leveraging outside campus resources as much as possible, whether that's multicultural centers or LGBT resource centers, like there's usually someone on campus doing this type of work and doing it really well and probably willing to do it for free for your students because they're a member of the campus community. Um, I think, you know, other pieces are just not being, not being afraid to, um, to talk about challenging topics, but being prepared to go there yourself before you expect students to is um, really important. You know, it's not it's not a conversation or a series of conversations you can have with students if you're not being authentic and the way that you're engaging with them. Um, so that's something to always keep in mind. Um, you know, and then I think just being really comfortable with how you are. Sorry, my cat is just really interested in trying to knock my computer. Um, um, what was I? What, what was I just saying? Sorry. Uh, I think you might have been on one last topic about mm -hmm. um, you know not being afraid and kind of leveraging those partnerships. I know that those were certain things that you were mentioning. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the, the last question uh, in terms of, you know, how do you kind of um, assess that students are getting valuable experiences out of it, uh, I would definitely encourage anyone who's in the sciences who's looking to do some work with students that aren't necessarily traditionally science related to look at what related fields are doing to assess students. You know, a lot of uh, reflective writing, um, and a lot of kind of things that we tend to get a little nervous about when we're 
hard scientists doing clinical medicine all the time are really going to be the best ways to make sure um, you know this this type of information is being processed because it's not the type of information you can give a lecture on and have someone take a test on and they've learned it like it's a, it's a process that every individual has to go through to um, you know constantly be improving skills um, it's not really something that has an end point which i think again gets back to the going outside of the profession to look at um, some really effective ways of getting it done but yeah thank you so um, are there any other um, uh, elements of either the WIS CARES program or um, the selectives course that you that we've talked about tonight that you might kind of want us to know about um, that maybe we haven't talked about? Um, well, I was just like looking at, I had this, got this little cheat sheet from you about questions <laughs> you might ask me. And there were a couple that I was really excited about that we didn't quite get to. So if you just give me one second. Sure. Okay, so I think this, and these are both going back to the, some questions you had posed under the, the WISCARE section. Sure. Uh, one of which was, was asking about, um, you know, what people could do on a small scale to provide assistance and to kind of do some work around this, even if you didn't have a program to, to do it through. Um, and I think, you know, as far as that is concerned, there's a lot of ways that individual people could actually have a huge impact in their communities right now, um, particularly as far as landlords are concerned um, and educating landlords on whether or not pets make good tenants, um, particularly around the issue of, you know, things like declining cats. Uh, a lot of individuals who don't have a lot of resources if they're trying to get housing uh, or trying to avoid being evicted from housing and they have a cat that has not been declawed, that, that can be, you know, a really big sticking point. But a lot of people, if they don't have, you know, an active relationship with a veterinarian, they don't know to have a conversation with their landlord about why, you know, an uh, adult cat that's declawed is going to be more destructive than if they keep their claws. Um, all of those educational pieces are things that our profession has done a great job educating clients about why, you know, we don't necessarily want to perform that procedure, but our clients are now in a position where um, they don't know how to educate the people they're trying to get housing from about that piece of the equation. Mm -hmm. So I think um, that would be, be one thing that could actually make a huge impact and wouldn't be that difficult for individuals to have that conversation. Um, so that was one I just kind of wanted to, to touch on. Um, and then and I think the only other piece was just, uh, you know, impressing upon anyone who's interested in starting to do outreach or do work, especially if you're talking about doing it with a population of people who are experiencing homelessness, um, would be to make sure that you are, you know, reaching reaching out and working with the population you're trying to work with to figure out what uh you know what a collaboration could be not just kind of saying this is the service that i want to provide you because i think you need access to it but taking the time to build a relationship and not jump into programming and really when doing a needs assessment to make sure it's not just the needs that you know i think 
you should be getting for your animal and whether or not you're meeting them, but making sure to, to ask questions of um, any group, you know, that you're reaching out to work with to see what, what that group of people sees as their need, because it might be something completely different and something so much more fundamental than you're thinking of. Um, and if you miss that, then you've missed a huge opportunity to build trust and really make a difference. Yeah, I think that this has been a really great discussion. I think that some of the takeaways um, for me and hopefully for our viewers watching live or later will be um, partnerships outside of the profession are really key um, to making things happen um, and that there are concrete skills um, associated with cultural competence um, with various communities and that there are really concrete ways of being um, good advocates for our client owners um, and ownership can look lots of different ways. Um, this is certainly something that we've talked about um, at AAVMC, um, kind of invisible ownership has been something I know for me, I've been talking about for the last decade. So it's, it's kind of great to hear that echoed and um, that it's not that difficult um, to pull together a course. Um, so folks try it, um, but think about assessment tools um, that um, don't involve animals, but really kind of do lean to, frankly, some of the more social science um, tools for assessment, such as reflective writing. So um, I am delighted that you have been our first guest. This has been um, illuminating, and I hope that our viewers have also enjoyed it. Um, please do uh, watch this later. Um, watch it again. It'll be on YouTube as soon as um, we go off air. And you can certainly post questions um, under the YouTube video, and I'll be monitoring that from time to time. And I'm sure that Dr. Gillis um, will be happy to answer any questions that come up. I will give him, make sure that he gets those and um, has an opportunity to respond. So with that, thank you very, very much for taking an hour um, with you and your pets who <laughs> 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 made guest appearances tonight. Um, thank you so much. We really um, appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to seeing everyone again next month um, on diversity and inclusion on air. We will be featuring University of Sydney's Dean um, Roseanne Taylor. So join us. Um, we'll be posting the date and time for that soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.